Welcome back to Sci-Fi and Fantasy Read Along. I am ATN. Hey everybody, I'm Yule. And I'm DM Phil. Hey guys, welcome back. We're on to chapter 19, I think, and the final book in book 6. Entitled, what? City of Blue Fire? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Final final chapter in that book. And and it's the, and then the next one is the last book. And okay, so yes, because there are only seven books in the novel. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Okay, so in our last episode, Ralik prevented the assassination of Cole at great expense, and New Force stepped in to protect the coin bearer, and Lorne absconded from the Jaghut Tyrant's barrow with his precious acorn. So, are you guys ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's talk about the preamble. Mm-hmm. All right, so this preamble super, super short by somebody that we've never heard of before, I'm pretty sure. Um, did you guys get anything that you could pull out of there? Uh, who do you think it's referring to? It's almost addressed to somebody in particular. Who do you think that would be? I wrote two notes down. I think it's ultimately it's talking about cruel, but I think it's kind of talking about Krupp, maybe? Krupp and cruel. Why Krupp? Well, because he has been connected with Cruel from the very beginning, and he's made several references to burning in his own pier. Um, yeah, okay. I don't see it, but okay. If it is Cruel, it's the first time they referenced him as maker of paths. That's true enough. Was he the first? First what? The first whatever, because I was looking in the back, I'm like, is there somebody with this title of you know master of paths or anything like that? What did you find back there? Well, the only thing I saw was that in the magic, you know, when they were talking about Warrens and stuff like that, each one of those is a path to something else. Yeah, they are. The person that maybe they're talking about, this maker of paths, this master of paths, uh, is the creator of all Warrens, or maybe what all Warrens come from, or someone who was able to control all of them, or something like that. I think you're on to something. As far as like the funeral pyre thing, um... we've seen him standing in his own funeral pyre before, and we know from the last chapter that somebody just died on the tower again. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like it's all about crawl, and uh, whoever's writing this is writing it to crawl. And also the the name of the poem they're quoting here is Old Temple, which yeah, crawl's temples is an old temple, but. Uh, it's a similar thing. They rearranged the words a little bit, and it's similar to a Gadrobi epitaph mentioned in Chapter 7. Which was? I see a man crouched in a fire who leaves me cold and wondering what he is doing here so boldly crouched in my pyre. Crouched in my pyre. I don't know. Maybe there's a connection. Who knows? <clears throat> but the cool thing here is at the very end, it said, Maker of Paz, you were never so thirsty in youth. And I wonder, does that mean bloodthirsty? Either that or horny, I guess. Ambitious? <laughs> we still haven't gotten very much information about Kroll. In the attic above the Phoenix Inn, Mies is guarding Crocus and Absalar. And Arilta has been gone for a long time, which is pointed out by Absalar. Oh, yeah. And then Mies is like thinking to herself, oh, this kid's still sharp. Um, yeah, and of yeah. course, obviously, we knew that because Meese knows that Sorry slash Absalar killed Shirt the way she did, and I don't think Absalar knows that. 
Uh, no, no, she doesn't. I'm just saying sorry slash Absalor. Her body did that work, and Meese knows it, but Meese doesn't know that she's lost her memory, and, and Absalor doesn't know that she's been killing people. <laughs> A right. lot of people. In, in fact, when Meese leaves uh, uh, Absalor and Crocus alone, the first thing she does is she says to Crocus, why did you kill that guard? Right. And right. obviously it was sorry that did that. Yeah, and he didn't want to talk about it, though. He did he not like, want to talk know. about it. He's very... He doesn't really want to ever talk to to, to Absalar that much, um, it seems. He's, he, That's in, true. In this whole chapter especially, he's very... He, he doesn't really put a whole lot of stock in anything she has to say. He, and, this is a trend. This has been happening. Mm-hmm. This this happened on the ride back um, from the hills as well. Sure. I mean, and there's a part of it that makes it feel like it's a youth. It's a, a certain attraction that he has for the, the person. You know, it's kind of like when you're pulling the hair of the girl on the playground, you know, type thing. Or I'm not going to pay attention to you or I'm not going to give you. He's nagging her is what it's what he's doing. It does Look. seem you know, something like that, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think he doesn't know how to have a real healthy relationship, so it's he plays it as being quiet and aloof. We can talk about him in earnest towards the end because they have, you know, they have obviously more interactions throughout this chapter and we'll get a lot more evidence about the way that they're behaving towards each other. Okay, so Mies did leave because she's like, "Huh, I should probably check on Arilta." And she's like, "Lock this behind me." And she takes off. And Crocus is like, "All right. Well, let's get out of here." She didn't, don't do anything stupid, is what me said, or something like that. Don't disappoint me. Yeah. The, the first thing he wants to do, it's dark, let's get out of here. Right. Well, he does think about some stuff, and he does tell Absol, well, okay, so you had, you talked about the question, like, why did you kill that guard she had asked him, and he didn't want to talk about it. And then he's like, this has got to be, there's got to be more to what's going on than just an arrest order, because why else would I pay? I mean, I pay the Thieves Guild to get me out of those jams, so mm-hmm. something else is going on. So he, yeah. he he picks that up, but he still decides, I'm just going to go and do my own thing, because I don't, I don't like people telling me what to do. That is what he said, but the truth is he recognizes there's something going on, and nope, and people are keeping him in the dark, and he doesn't like it. And so he'd rather separate himself from the game if that's what you want to look at it i don't know he, he doesn't want to sit here and let fate take its course he wants to choose his own fate he's had a problem with people leaving him in the dark you know all that Marilio and cole stuff that's been going on he hasn't really known anything about it but he sees all of them talking about it and then he's like what's going on here he knows he's being kept in the dark for sure mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're not just protecting him. They're keeping him in the dark, and he doesn't like that. And he's like, well, if you're really my friends, why would you do that? I don't know. Maybe that's what he's thinking. But I thought it was interesting that when they brought up killing the guard, he just said he didn't want to talk about it. He protects her. That was a kindness. Yes, exactly. That was a very nice thing for him to do. Well, so now we know that his life is forfeit because of something that happened. You know, it was the death of the guard, which Absalar is the person who did it. And then here oh. she is bringing it up. And he's like, no. I don't want to talk about it. Not Absalar. All right. Sorry, slash Absalar. There were no witnesses. He's That's the true. only witness. So it's his <laughs> word against theirs. Right? And she questions, why do you want to go see Chalice? And he, he's like, don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. So it is dusk when he opens the window of the attic. Crocus turns to Absalar and says, are you coming? No, he says, are you staying here? And she says, no. I'm coming with you. 
And I, I was thinking, like, she was surprised that he would even suggest that he would that she would stay here. And she never thought twice about coming with him. And no. for whatever, I, I wonder if there isn't still some some lingering effect of Shadow Throne. The rope. I was yeah, thinking it was more like she is completely alone, knows nobody. This is his city, and he just wants to abandon her in this attic. And she's like, "You're what? No, I'm coming with you." Well, I mean, if you're if you're so worried for yourself and you got to hang on to somebody. You probably don't want to say anything that's going to upset them. Like, why'd you kill that person? And, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. That's a reasonable well, question. Well, not just that, but he's a fugitive. He's a fugitive from the law, and his sentence is death. And mm-hmm. if you're found with him, you're probably going to get death, too. So I don't think he was being mean. I, I, I don't think the, either one of them really thought that through, mm-hmm. is what I really think. They're of an age when... How old was Perrin when he made his terrible decision? 17? Oh, it was about this age. You mean 13 when he's like, I want to join the military? (laughs) No, no. When he actually did join the military and like get attached to Lorne and all that kind of stuff, that'll happen pretty quickly. And he was about this age, you know, and he's regretted every decision he's made at that time, right? So... It's it's fine. People make decisions, you know, all along. They're making their own decisions, though. I think that's pretty key. Yeah. All right. By leaving the by leaving that room when he's not supposed to. He locked the he locked <laughs> the trap door and then left. So like they're not going to be able to get back in there. Yeah. I know, but he left out the window, and I thought that was like really cool. She's like, absolutely. I'll, I'll I'll lock I'll lock that trap door behind me, and he did, and he just went out the window. I think it's great. All right, so Surratt, the Tisty Andy assassin mage, second only to Anamander Rake, is waiting on the roof of the Phoenix Inn. She is dripping with power because of that encounter she had in the previous chapter where she got bested by somebody that she never saw coming, and she's not going to let that happen twice. And then out comes Crocus, like crawling right into her grasp. Yeah, uh, yeah, he even looks up right at where she is and looks through right her. through her. Yeah. Well, th- th- yeah, well, this wasn't random. I mean, she knew he was there, and she knew exactly who he was with, and she could sense uh, Absalar's aura as being, what is, what is that? Astonishingly innocent. Yeah, harmless. Yeah. yeah, harmless. Interesting there. I don't know. So she, it was. this wasn't just random. I mean, she was waiting there, and she knew exactly what was going to happen. Oh, wait. No, she didn't. No. <laughs> she knew how to find Crocus a second time. It ha- She had no problem doing that, and Crocus is just climbing right into her web. And before he can get to his feet, he's, like, up on this angled roof, and he's climbing to his feet, and she pounces. Like you said before, she knew that Meese and Orilta were gone. And that a harmless woman and Crocus her her objective, and she got thwarted by an invisible hand. It says. I I don't know how to take that. To me, it was like Big B's, <laughs> Big yeah. B's hand, interposing hand or something. I don't know. She said something touched her chest and then like pushed her back and then like threw her away. So like an enormous amount of force, not a like bone jarring force, also. Yeah, but she said yeah. she went cartwheeling off. And hit a chimney or something. So she has the spell fly on her and invisibility. And when she charged, something intercepted her and then smashed her backwards into a chimney. And she's just kind of floating there in a daze. We've seen that before where a Tisty Andy has like floated up above uh, 
in in combat, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe this well, one. Well, I think it was when <laughs> Quickbin and Kalam were trying to track down the Assassin's Guild, and then they got ambushed by the Tistiandi. Mm-hmm. And that's the point I wanted to bring up. Is like, do you remember when Quickbin put a spill of invisibility either on himself or Kalam? I can't remember. And he's like, are they going to be able to detect that? And he's like, they'd have to be really powerful to detect me being invisible. More and powerful than Quickbin. Exactly, and so Surat is incredibly powerful, powerful herself. So whoever detected her has to be even more powerful. Dude, that's crazy. And she is so nervous and paranoid about this unseen assailant that she's already encountered once that she's pumping everything she's got into her spells, and it's still not enough. So Crocus is up on the. Uh, he's he's got his daggers out and he's crouched down and he's looking around when Absalar comes out onto the roof when she climbs out onto the roof, and she's like, "What's going on?" He's like, "I thought I heard something," and then they head off. The most awesome part of that scene is that um, this incredibly powerful mage assassin got bee slapped again. <laughs> no, it's just it's so good. I mean, I, I guess obviously with invisibility, you don't know it's happening, but. Surat already knew that this happened once, so yeah, uh, probably. I, and with all the magical defenses already up and not being seen by a human like Crocus, still got like you said, B slap. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty hilarious and uh, very scary. I mean, who can have magic this strong that we've met? I mean, in the hierarchy, this has to be somebody more powerful than Surat, and that would leave like maybe Anamander Rake and people on his level. Cruel? Could it be cruel? We don't know. I mean, it could be, I guess, because he's elder. I mean, he might be able to accomplish something like this, but I have no idea. I mean, I can only speculate. You know, and I, here we go. We're, we're talking about a book that I've read a few times. And you don't remember? I listened to it. And it's funny, like, I do remember a lot, but now I'm starting to get the nuanced characters that I didn't care about as much. Because the thing is, is as you're reading these and you're like, I got nine more of these to go. In a hurry. And, and as you've been told by many a reader that maybe has told you, get through it and then go back. And that sounds even more daunting. And you keep going through, even though you might not fully understand everything you've been reading. I felt I've had reading comprehension tests growing up, and I always ace those. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, maybe in elder age, uh, I've uh, lost some... some uh, faculties that i can't you know can't access properly they might be they might be <laughs> hidden behind smoke <laughs> yeah that might be true it's all this haze in california right now oh uh, yeah that's it that's definitely <laughs> it Marilio is waiting in his spartan apartment for the return of Ralic nom and the longer he waits the more convinced he is that Ralic has died trying to stop Cole's assassination. Which he can only hope that Ocelot at least got slowed down so Cole wouldn't get killed as he was entering the city. Yes, that maybe Ralic died, but it was still effective enough to prevent <laughs> Cole's death. And Marilio says that he's going to go ahead with the plan if Ralic is dead. But it's not a plan that he likes. He hasn't dueled in years, and Turbinor is supposed to be the city's best. And he doesn't think his odds are very good of surviving that encounter. There's a lot of um, mind-making up going on in this chapter. Oh, this book. Like, this book. Yeah, you're right, in this book. But, like, I mean, specifically right here, we're seeing Marilio start to step up. He's like, well, I'm going to do this. if it's, You know, I'm going to take yep. this on. Yep. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make sure this happens. And uh, and we'll see it later also. In, like, quick oh, yeah. succession. I mean, it's, like, yeah. really 
boom, every boom. section, every mm-hmm. section has something to do with people taking the reins and being the masters of their own destiny. Absolutely. All right. So Marilio is considering circle breaker and the eel, because that is how he was warned about the assassination attempt. And that's how all this stuff got started. And he's thinking that maybe he knows who the eel is. He has an inkling. And then there's a sound at the door and he like runs over there and he's like, Oh good. It's Rallick. And he opens the door and there's nobody there. <laughs> he's then, looking at, he's looking where people uh, normally are when you answer a door. You mean standing? <laughs> yeah. Standing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Rallick <laughs> is lying. He's covered in blood and he's lying on the ground at, at the door. And he's like, hey, my, my feet keep giving out. Yeah. He, he's like got a little joke to make, you know, for, the, for a circumstance. Hey, I call shenanigans. So when we talked about this, when he got stabbed on top of the tower, and he w- he was convinced he was going to die. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Do you remember that? And I was like, oh, I'm so devastated. He was so cool. And now he's dead. And you guys were like, uh, yeah, Phil. Yeah, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> There's reasons why I was pretty confident that he wasn't dead, and it had nothing to do with remembering this chapter. And it, it, mostly it had to do with the fact that he'd covered himself in that red dust, and we never got the payoff. You know, we were told that it does something weird to people and it's unpredictable. And he just rubbed the stuff all over his skin without any regard for the caution label. And we never got to see what it was. So I was like, nah, we got to get a payoff for that. Otherwise, Erickson wouldn't have included it. That's right. true. That's true. There's a little bit of meta reading in there, but that, that's that's plausible. Yeah, you don't want to do it so often where you uh, where you put so much information that you like don't fear for a character's life. But I agree, like you said, meta, um, going into it. Also, it's very difficult to end a chapter or a character's life on their chapter when it's from their point of view, I think. You know, again, being a little meta. I mean, it's not... Trust me, Erickson will do that in later books. Either way, I fell for it. I was convinced he was dead. I was completely emotionally devastated because he was such a... He has a lot of promise to his character, and I was so happy when I found out he's not dead. Even with the braid, you still thought he was cool? Absolutely. That's Got cool. rid of it. It made him better right there. That's right. <laughs> All right. So Rallick is covered in blood. Marilio helps him in onto the bed. And it's revealed that Cole is still alive and that he's killed Ocelot. And he's like, help me get, me get out of this armor. And like, let's take care of this wound. And when they take off the armor, there's a there's a weak old scar there, but no wound. There's a lot of blood. Yeah, but no wound, like you said. I mean, a right. wound, a, a healed, a healed wound. So it turns out that they're still on schedule, but because of the blood loss and the way that Ralic is acting, it looks like Marilio is going to have to be the one that duels Turban Or. And Ralic is like, uh, uh-uh, uh, you're gonna die. You can't do that. Marilio gives him a washcloth, tells him to get cleaned up, and he's like, I'm going to go and see about the eel real quick. And he's like, you know who it is? He's like, I think I might. Interfering bastard. Yeah, he gives a clue earlier in this part uh, as to who we think it might be. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, the whole uh, Erickson going from a part of a chapter directly into another chapter. We've seen this a few times. Yeah, it's uh, a nice linking tool. Sorry to spoil this by saying that, but that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, there's you. You're on it, man. You you did it right. That's the way to go. And, and I mean, seriously, like the first time, I was like, "What? No." Because again, you know, I'm trying to get through this book so I can get to the next one. 
Yeah. And no, it was no. What? Now it's like all the time. It's just staring you in the face. And it's yeah. this person. It's like, duh. Right. <laughs> you fool. It's like when you see that mystery and, you know, you can't go back and unknow a mystery, <laughs> you know. You know who the well, killer is. You know what you the get deal hit is. in the head enough times, and you can forget. <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend that, though. No, no, no. There's better ways to forget. <laughs> Electroshock, maybe. Whatever. Anything better than getting kicked by a mule. So he goes to wipe this dust off his face, and Marilio is like, "Except for the blood, you're clean. No red dust. You, know, you don't have this dust on your face that you're talking about." He's like, "Get me a mirror." And the auditorial dust, what do you think? It seeped into his pores or something like that? Probably something to that effect. And obviously some of it worked and it may get consumed in the usage, you know, because there was that red flash when he got shot with the crossbow and the, the crossbow bolt just disappeared. So oh, so he has like a meter that's being sucked up or something. Maybe, like that. maybe it's like a consumable item, you know, but maybe it did get into his skin. Maybe. I mean, how is he healed? He got stabbed in the heart. Yeah. He's not dead. Philip thought he was dead. He thought he was dead. He knew where he'd been stabbed. He knew that was a fatal wound, right? He's no ding-dong. He's a professional. professional. And he, and yet he's alive. So somehow the unpredictable effect was that he didn't he's die. He's a professional that doesn't use magic. If he had not put on that auditorial, he would be dead. Sure, it seems that way for sure. He just doesn't stand a chance. Like that crossbow <laughs> bolt would have killed him. So, But that was last chapter. Not even that. I mean, he never even found Ocelot without that dust. Oh, because of being able to see the invisibility? No, it doesn't see. It It cancels magical effects, and so it, I think it's a radius mm. effect. That's right. You're right. And so, and so as soon as he climbed out on the ledge, that's when Ocelot became visible. So Krupp has been at Baruch's all day giving his report over and over again from the sound of it, and now he is begging to leave and Baruch has been ignoring him for at least an hour and just staring at his toes while he just kind of twiddles his toes. Yeah, Krupp. Uh, so I was telling you earlier that he reminded me of somebody. And I don't know if we've said this before. So personally, he reminded me of an old boss of mine. That doesn't Rory? matter. Yeah, he totally reminded me of Rory. Huh. But the thing about Rory was I don't think he ever read these books. But what he did read was George R. R. Martin. And Krupp here is like, you're going to keep me here all day. And he talks about all this food that he's looking forward to eating because he has to take care of himself. And I'm thinking this is exactly like reading what George R. R. Martin lays out when he's talking about those big old feast yes, situations. Yes. And yeah. I love the way Krupp does it because, you know, he does it in such a way when he's like naming all the things that he wants. You think he's done and then there's more to come. And there's yeah. always, and then of course you know he needs some wine to wash it down and all that other stuff, but I think Krupp is a, a comical version of a George R. R. Martin. That's my guess. I think he would definitely like George Martin too. He would read that stuff and be, oh, that sounds delicious. Oh, that sounds delicious. <laughs> oh, it's funny. I, we brought this up before, and I said that uh, when I imagine Krupp, I imagined him as like um, Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Like the the old one, not the new, not the new version. Well, he like moves around one. a bit more than I think George R. R. Martin does. Well, I have revised my perception of Krupp here, but I still like visually. I still envision him as Uncle Fester. Well, Krupp is filling the silence with talk about food. Then Baruch interrupts him 
and says, I've been thinking about this circle breaker and how he's been bringing me vital information for the past year. And I could identify him, but truthfully, I would rather not. But I desperately need to speak to the eel. And Krupp kind of closes his mouth and says, well, perhaps I can help you out there. Do you think Baruch was setting him up? Do you think he's worked it out? If not, He might be playing the game if he knows. I think he's testing Krupp right now. Well, he wants something very specific, right? He wants to talk to the eel, and he tells Krupp what he wants. He wants to have a meeting. He wants to talk to this person, the eel, to see if their interests coincide so they can save Darujistan. But it still sounds like Krupp is going to be an, a, an intermediate yes, between absolutely. the eel and him. So Krupp is going to come back later that evening and give him his answer. And remember, it's already dusk. And, and what you said, he wants to know where the eel stands as far as Jerusalem because Marilio, as much as I may have talked smack about him in an earlier episode, he definitely cares about the continuance of Jerusalem as a city. Oh, yes. yeah. Keep keeping going on, you know. So once it's agreed that Krupp will go deliver a message and then return with an answer, Baruch dismisses Krupp. Well, he does, and I just, you know, it, it comes down to the fact that Baruch was saying, I was like, I really don't want to ferret out this guy's real identification. And I don't know, like, that level of personal restraint, because this is he's an information broker, right? He knows things, he controls things. And the fact that he's given Circle Breaker so much respect up until now, and that kind of touched me. I really appreciated it. And that's why I say it was a test, because the only way he was not going to finally follow through with that was if he could get a direct information or a direct communication with the eel and so that's why i think i think he was testing krupp which seems to have a lot like lots of information about the eel with without providing any information about the eel you did, know what I'm krupp, saying? did krupp pass then that test or did he fail because he pretty much gave up the goods right up you know he's like oh i can get a hold of them yeah you see what i mean i think it was a test of krupp on how how whether or not he was an agent of the eel and how how involved he was with him because he had, in a previous chapter he said oh what do you know about the eel and he's like oh I know all these things he's got hundreds of you know people around the city watching every move and reporting to him if I'm not mistaken that was everything that uh, was talked about in concerning the eel not something that he necessarily knew you know um, I could be wrong it's it's hard to. He Sorry definitely admitted that. that he knew how to uh, get a hold of the eel in this right. case. Yes. Whereas yes. before, the only thing that he had admitted to was he had he had like accidentally come across something, you know, like. But now he's admitting that he knows something. In, in the first first time he talked about the eel, he just lavished how amazing the eel was. The same kind of self. Yeah. Uh, Self, um, aggrandizing, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he did it to the eel and he always does it to himself. So, Brooke is like, huh, <laughs> I wonder, maybe, I don't know. All right, so in one of the rooms of the Phoenix Inn, Cole is asleep, and Perrin and Whiskey Jack are continuing a discussion from previously or from a previous chapter. So Perrin thinks that he can fill in all of the missing pieces of Whiskey Jack's explanation, which was admittedly full of holes. So do you guys think you can paraphrase or summarize what he thinks pretty uh, concisely? Probably not, but 
the one thing I want to say is that Kalam or Callum and uh, Mallet and who else was there? Was there another person? Just Whiskey Jack. Just those guys. Okay. Yeah. But you like you said, it was a it was a conversation between Perrin and Whiskey Jack. Essentially. And Perrin, and Perrin is trying to uh, break down everything again so that we all understand it perfectly about what is going on with Dujak. That and, we learned in the last chapter. Right. He's like, all right, we know that you guys are willing to get rid of, you know, skip out on Lassine. But you have all these people, and you're going to have to feed them. And that's why you need uh, Stan to, like, stamp. And, and maybe I'm getting some of that screwed up. And he's also talking about how Stan's supposed to have all this chaos, and the leaders are supposed to be killing each other, and all this other stuff. But he um, he's missing out on a little bit of information that Whiskey Jack has. Right. Right. Okay. So, like, I'm going to fill in the detail that I think you missed, and that okay. was that the the purpose of causing the chaos by detonating the roads, and it's and having the uh, the leaders of the city kill each other off, was so that Dujek, after going renegade, could stroll in there with his army and like settle everything down, mm-hmm. and thereby find a home for his new army and you know beds and food essentially for the new army. But Whiskey Jack says that they don't care about Lacine. They're not worried about Lacine because the Seven Cities is about to completely regain their independence and there won't be an army to send after them in the first place. And second of all, there's actually a threat in the South that they're very concerned about and which they intend to answer. And that yeah. is the Panion Seer. Yeah, they say uh, this is not just for Genebacus. This is the world is what yes. he's talking about. And and. The Panion Seer are going to have a holy war. Uh-huh. That's going to like devastate everything, basically. They're going to yep. run over everybody. Everybody got to die. This part is, I think, really, really awesome. This is the first time we've ever gotten any inkling of the magnitude or the depth of the threat of the Panion Seer. Not even close, right? Till up until now? They, they tickled us a little bit, uh, I think, either the previous chapter or the one right before that. And um, back in quite a, like back in chapter ten, we got an inkling that they were there and that they had started to conquer. And then I think two chapters ago, we found out that they were a, a spreading threat. And now we're finding out that it's a threat big enough that Dujek is from another continent. Somebody with an army is like, nope, that needs an answer. Right, and he's willing to even defy his empress or the empire itself to say this is the biggest threat our world will face, and we have he's to stop Shanghai- it now. He's Shanghaiing an army to go and deal with this. I don't know. I, I, there's got to be a word for it. It's like duty or sacri- self-sacrifice or whatever you want to call it, but would, it's like, no, no matter what, these are the bad guys. Would would Dujek be like a paladin or something like that? Maybe. You know, taking... You know, I mean, the lawful aspect of that character doesn't really apply here since he's stealing an entire army. (laughs) But the good aspect of it, you know, it almost feels like, well, if you're going to go up against somebody in a holy war, you better have a god at at your back. Do they? I don't think they do. I don't (laughs) know that they do. (laughs) But I don't don't know. Honestly, I don't know how they're going to pull this off. If the Petty and Sea are such a threat... They've, you know, they've got the entire continent that does not like them or want them here. And how are they going to be able to do that and stop the Penny and Seer? I don't know. Big questions. I don't and, have an and answer And this for you. is just a subplot for later books anyway, because we have the Jagged Tyrant to deal with. That's right. Like, that is oh, true. By yeah. the way, Whoops. there's this Jagged Tyrant that could destroy the world, but that's actually a minor threat. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, this one only deals with continents. The other one might be for the whole world. Well, you you have a very good point. This is a, absolutely a setup for the series itself, mm-hmm. independently of this novel. As a reader, because I did make it that far, I think I made it to book four, a brilliant insertion early into the story made it so much more huh, worldly. I don't know. It connected. The, everything in this world is connected. The story's connected. I, I really, really appreciated this insert, even though they've only mentioned this a second time. They only mentioned it twice now, but really, really good artistically done on uh, from so Erickson. Why haven't you finished the series? Uh, what? Come on, I, I'm running out of I'm running out of fingers for my excuses here. Good answer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> because this podcast moves too slow. That's why. That, that's right. <laughs> that, that is the truth. Come on, right. I I read faster than George R. R. Martin writes. That's. Uh, <laughs> Do you? But barely. Barely. (laughs) All right. So they agree that Perrin should remain hidden from Lorne, and the bridge burners ditch him with Cole. So he swapped cities, and he swapped company, but he's back on babysitting duty. He is totally, like, being stuck in a room. It's funny. We had uh, earlier in the chapter, we had Crocus. He was stuck in the room, and he's decided to leave. <laughs> but as of yet, Perrin sticks around. Perrin might have a little more wisdom than Crocus yeah. at this point. Yeah. All right, so Lorne and Tool are back on the hill, back in the hills. They've escaped from the Barrow, and based on how thirsty her horses are, Lorne estimates that two days have passed since they entered the Barrow. So Tool reminds Lorne of his offer and says that he's going to remain here for 10 days, and he's going to watch and observe, but he's not going to interfere, but he's curious about this tyrant, and that when she's done in the city, if she wants to come and find him, she knows where he'll be. He says, if it is your desire, I will be waiting here for 10 days. You come and meet me. Ooh. If it is your desire. I like that's, that. That's, I'm glad you pointed that out. Thank I think you. that's pretty important. Tool is like my task is completed he has done everything he's supposed to do we kind of feel like well you know he wasn't really necessarily there just to guard her you know <laughs> and, no, anyway. and then she wakes the up and his swords at his throat at her throat you know um but he is there to aid her and this is the end of it he and has fulfilled his yeah. responsibilities to the empress all of them and he is now a free uh, Talon Amas, and he, when when she bids him farewell and heads to the city, she calls him by his full name, Onos Tulan, and he says, "That name is is over. I am Tool." Man, that's a that's a form of acceptance right there. Well, he, he definitely is, is accepting he, his new identity. He yeah. is also grown as a yeah. uh, we'll call it as a person right now. Why not? Um, why not? And, and yeah, like I said, acceptance. Uh, he. He is really eager to see this tyrant and says that it will not see him. Mm-hmm. So he's very sure of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, what is that just like a fit of rage or can't see him because he's what he is? I'm just kind of curious. Uh, I don't know. I okay, assume well. we'll find out, but it, it's one of those things that Erickson may not have to answer because we can just take his word for it. That's going to work. And so long as we don't see any evidence to the contrary, then it worked. So now Lorne is going to take this finest, which is in the shape of an acorn. Yeah. And she's planting it. Is that what's going to happen? She has a place to put it. Does she know where? 
She's taking it to Darujistan. That's all I'm really clear about. Uh-huh. And she doesn't want it to be in her possession when the tyrant shows up. Well, if she's lost two days and it's waking up already at the end of last chapter. <laughs> I don't want it anywhere on my person either. Yeah, she needs to hurry. And okay. she uh, she says to herself, and, and, and she was she says this after she's thinking about how she and Perrin could have been a thing. Yeah. But she says to herself, dying's never in anybody's plans. Referring and, to Perrin, because she thinks Perrin's dead. Right. So I was uh, kind of going with another uh, level of acceptance there. Like her, her, her belief in what could have happened and what did happen. It's yeah. just like, huh, oh, well, this is something that's happening. Right She's here. accepting of her fate there mm-hmm. in, in that regard. But, <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of, I think it's a little bit heavier than that for her. Because as she's writing, she's thinking about Perrin. She's thinking about her encounter, her coming encounter with Sari, which obviously she doesn't know what we know about Sari. Yes, and she's also thinking about turning her attentions to the coin bearer. So she has accepted her role of Lacine, you know, from Lacine, and she is heading down that path. And she no longer feels any stress or any burden. Like all of the all of the worries have just washed away. Yeah. And so she's no longer plagued by doubts. Yeah. She's made her choice and it sounds like she's sticking with Lacine. And if that was a crossroads, I can't help feeling that she's on the wrong road. Well, I, th- I think she understands that sorry is out of the picture now. No, she doesn't. No, I think it is. I mean, nope. you, like it said, she had too many other more immediate concerns. Like, sorry, like, sorry is a concern of hers. No, like it was a concern. Like it's not anymore. She said uh, as soon as the finish was out of her hands, she would focus her talents on discovering this coin bearer. And I think she has some preternatural ability to find people. Maybe that's how she found Sari in the first place. We already know she does because she was able to find Perrin. That was the whole point of her having Perrin with the bridge burners. Yeah. So, and I, I, I know. So, but until now, she said she hadn't had time to think about a pawn, but she had had too many other media concerns like Sari, which means now in her mind, Sorry is no longer a concern. Maybe she has a sense that it's not a problem anymore. Well, I don't think it's not a concern. It's that she's understanding that her she's going to have a confrontation with this person, and she's again accepting of that. And when you have the weight, when you you're like, all right, man, I'm going to go on in. And you know what, dying's a thing that you know happens, and it might happen here. And I'm okay with this. I'm going to go and get my stuff done. As a result, like Adrian said, the weight of the you know weight is off her shoulders entirely. She doesn't and, have to make any decisions, right? She just has to follow orders. She's done everything. You know, all she has is like one more, two more acts to do. I'm and afraid for her. I don't think she's going to make it through. <laughs> I think she chose I think she chose poorly. Uh she was offered she was offered the choice of going with Tool and I think she just rejected it. Well, she has 10 days to make it. She decision. does. She does, but she's on her way to Darujistan as the adjunct of the Empress. Do you think that the fact that Sari is now Absalar might actually, you know, there's an element of something she's not going to have to actually deal with? I don't think she'd be able to find Absalar because remember how quick Ben couldn't find Sari anymore mm-hmm. because the rope's no longer inside. I don't think that Lacine is going to be able to direct her. I don't think that Lauren's going to be able to find her. I don't think that I don't think that's coming anymore. Mm-hmm. So maybe, so maybe even if she's making a wrong decision, 
she might actually get out okay. <laughs> I mean, we can hope. I like Lauren. I want her to live, but it seems like she's she has embraced her role as the adjunct again, and that is the wrong path. Everybody else is choosing to to choose their own path, and she has chosen a form of slavery. Well, I just I want to point out that I, you know I called that when it goes all the way back to the very first time we ever met her, and I was I I I I what I okay all right. At any rate, she has gone back to herself, and so she had her self-doubts, she had her emotional crisis, but now she's going back to the machine again, and that's something I appreciate, because that's the role I kind of had painted for her, and it's, I don't know if it's kind of reassuring, but that's what I... Well, it's disconcerting to see, and these, these people feel like Marines... It's disconcerting when you feel that your Marines are willing to uh, turn... Maybe it's because of Lucene's actions. You know, she did kill the Emperor. And she is going around trying to wipe out all the people that have, like, you know, that still serve him, you know, in, in heart and soul. But you don't want to see these, like, military men just be so willing to, and so casually, well, maybe to Dujek it's not casual, but to just, like, skip out on their, uh, even if it doesn't seem like it's always the greatest thing, their responsibilities. Well, she said it, and at the end when she was stealing herself, she said, years of training, discipline, loyalty, and duty, the virtues of a soldier. And she found that zen again, that ultimate commitment, that unswerving devotion. Yeah, I think it's easy to fall back on habits, and I think that's what she's done. I think it was just easier than choosing the path of independence, and I, like I said, I feel bad for her. Well, and, and that's kind of like and having never been in the military. I have family members, but you know, uh, you have to, you have to give up your, if you're, especially if you're a career military person, you have to give up a lot of yourself in order to make that happen. You have to strip away a lot of your identity and you have to be a part of the core, you know, you have to be part of the, the Malazan empire, the army, and you have to believe in what's going on, even if it seems like really crappy situation this is your family now soldier yeah, this is your family now yeah this is what you signed up for and it's a little bit of a shame because we followed parents since he was a kid when he wanted to do this and we didn't get any of the time where he was becoming disillusioned so we never saw his gung-ho parent days you know what i mean i mean he was probably thrust into this way earlier than he should have been but um you know, we're only seeing him as basically, oh, I want to desert and screw Tattersail. <laughs> you know, uh, I want to cause unrest. What do you consider that first day on Itko Khan? I mean, what do you consider that? That was when he was gung-ho for the, for the employment. That's when he was gung-ho for the empire. He was already um, starting to sour on it just by, uh, you don't think he was even then? No. He didn't seem very happy when he had to pick through all those well, obviously, like you know, it's disgusting and stuff. And like he had that bad encounter with Topper that same day. Right. But like, I think he was, I think, you know, yeah, he was, what do you call it? Um, he was like petulant and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, like, I don't think he was soured on the empire at that point. I okay. think he soured over the two years. Well, what I'm saying is we didn't get, it's kind of like we got all of the stuff that happened within those years. He was such a puppet for so long. By I, choice. I, it feels like that's what tore him down more than anything, really. 
I mean, this all comes back to identity, right? Like there's all these people whose identities have been shredded or, you know, given over to the empire. And, you know, some of them are reclaiming their identities now. He's Mm -hmm. one of those people. Crocus and Absalar arrive at the new hiding spot, which turns out to be Kroll's temple. I think Crocus is going to the wrong place. I don't know why he thinks that's a better hiding spot than where he was. Because he, you can see everything from where he is. Yes. Yeah, so what? That's his you can big also deal. be seen. Perrin could see what was going on on the on the Belfry from where he was down at Worry Town. Dude, even as they're getting to where they are, Crocus is That's talking right. about how there was a murder up here when he was here a few days ago. Yeah, but I mean, geez, Louise. Dude, it's obviously a busy place. It's it's like one of the worst places to go. Everybody's coming through here. Yeah, <laughs> I, he must be compelled in some way to come here. I don't understand it personally, but like for whatever reason, he thinks this is a reasonable hiding spot, and Dude, it is not. He almost got killed getting here. Like, just the <laughs> fact that he left the gear. It was a bad idea. He doesn't know that. Is he still under Opon's control? Just a bit? He still has the coin, right? He still has the coin. And as far as we know, yes. All right. Well, I'll give him that then. <laughs> I got to wonder if he's under Cruel's control now because <laughs> he's just like, let's go there. That's a great place. And maybe it's not even Kroll. Who knows? So this is a wonderful story or part of the chapter. Great ending. This is a constant conversation between Absalar and Crocus. And as the conversation go on, goes on, she brings something up and then he automatically shoots it down. Oh, he mansplains everything. You know, you expect a long conversation when there's mansplaining. He does it curtly in places. He is extremely but, rude to her. Yes, he is. Yeah. When they're when they're climbing the tower, which is pitch black, and she's pointing out, hey, there's paintings on the wall. Dude, and he's she's like seeing everything. You can't see in the dark, and she's like, I can't. Yeah, she and thinks that's there's herself. blood. Yeah. There's blood on the stairs. There's something sticky on the stairs, and he's like, It's just runoff from the roof. Yeah. It's like it's ridiculous. And almost every almost every time when he does that, he then turns it around to wait till you get upstairs. Mm-hmm. Wait till you see the city. Oh, it's such a view. Yeah. Like, that's all he can think about in getting to. And then he sees a dead body. Right. And we know that's Ocelot. No. Yes. He's been stabbed in the head. That's definitely Ocelot. They're on top of the belfry. But uh, Absalar doesn't care about the dead body. She's looking at the moon. She's like, look at the moon. Oh, do you remember that dream where the moon had power? I remember the Krupp's dream when the moon was staring down, like shining brightly down, and Krupp couldn't even look at it because it was so bright. What was that in yeah. the early days when they, like the beginning of Kroll's time or something like that? Was that one yeah, of those? Yeah, it was in Third Dream. It was in, it was in Krupp's dream, and it was took place like 300,000 years yeah. ago. Or it was something. when Tattersail was born. Right. Yeah. Or reborn. I don't know. Let's go back just a second when, I mean, Absalar has all of these incredible abilities now like seeing in the dark yeah dude everything right? that she's ever been is like in her right now so she can where did climb rooftops from? no yeah. sweat she probably kills someone but she just doesn't know that yet i think a lot was left behind when the rope vacated the premises i That's think I he think. left a lot of skill sets behind that she shouldn't have obviously seeing in the dark is 
you know, Crocus couldn't see. He was walking up those stairs, like hugging the wall. And, and she's like everything. She can see everything. Has he only ever come up here in the evening? He's never yep. seen it in the daylight or even with a, a candle or anything. Because those paintings would have been there all that time, right? I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Unless unless there's, you know, you need to be able to see in the dark to see them. I don't know. Huh. I mean, it's it's possible that they're only there on moonlit nights or, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Something yeah. like that, sure. But, I mean, yeah, if he'd never been there before, how did he even find the stairs? I assume he's been there, but it's always been dark. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, he's not going to light a light. You know, he's not going to take a torch out there and be like, where is everything? Doesn't matter. Apslar has the ability to see in darkness now. um, So I think that's awesome. It is awesome. And she's concerned with the moon. Yeah, she is. But he he's like, which one? Because it doesn't, you know, everybody, obviously, you're thinking the moon, right? Yeah. Which moon? There's two moons. Well, moon spawn. Moon spawn. Because that's what that's what Crocus looks at. Because he's feeling petulant and contrary mm-hmm. and yeah so he takes a look at moonspawn and he said it's suffused with red and what what five five wing shapes yeah dragons five black dragons <laughs> swoop off of the moon and head northeast and disappear yeah and he's like did i even see that and then Absalar starts to tell the story of ghrelin yeah. Okay. So, where did that come from? Like, they're 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 up there. They're looking at Moonspawn, and then she says, "Well, she never looked see at its Moonspawn, oceans. though. He no, did. She, didn't see it. Yep. He, she was looking at the moon. The real. And then moon. when he was done, is when she starts fantasizing about growling and like this hippie life that will happen as a result. I think she is explaining uh, heaven. Mm-hmm. I think this is this is kind of like a mythological story told by people who live on the ocean or near the ocean. I mean, because it's not like if you look in the back of the book, there is no deity named Gralen, right? And there's this mythology built up, stories that she obviously heard from her dad or you know somebody else in that little fishing village of hers down in Itko Khan. Yeah, the Lord of the Deep Waters. And it's basically a story of like paradise or heaven that someday Gralen will come and he will take his selected chosen few back to the gardens of the moon where they will live and their children will swim like dolphins. So it's a paradise. And this book is called the gardens of the moon. And I have to wonder, like, does that mean essentially that he's calling his book paradise? That's interesting. I did not put that together. I think you're right. Oh, my gosh. Which is ironic, right? Because it describes nothing paradisical, right? It's a book full of terror, tragedy, and horror. But you're right. She's talking right now. She is talking about the the afterlife, the gardens of the moon. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I didn't get that. It's also about budding youth because at the end. (laughs) <laughs> let's let's ask let's ask two questions okay yeah go for it because when she's done telling her story of Gralen and heaven essentially crocus looks at her and he says why not well she says w- wouldn't this be wonderful this whole situation and then when he's looking at her and all he can see is her profile and he asks the question again why not give it to me what do you think that is about Dude, he's horny for her. He's horny all the time, but he um, really likes her. 
Let's be less crass because I don't think this All is right, sexual. All right, I can say it a different way. Okay, it says the question repeated itself in his head for an entirely different reason. Why? Which not? is standard, Erickson. <laughs> he look if he's specifically talking about growling initially, and wouldn't this be a wonderful world that she, that Absalar is describing? And he mm-hmm. says, "Why not?" And then there's a different reason as he looks at her. He yeah. is interested in her and has been for a while for a long time even since he saw the blood on her dagger do you think that's why he's being such a petulant little prick i, I think to some degree yes it, it, it's somewhat tantamount to like i said before pulling the hair the pigtails of the girl on the playground yeah uh it's you know it, it's it's uh they call it negging it's not being nice to someone so that they feel insecure about themselves so that you have power over them. Uh, these could all be things, but ultimately I think it's the folly of youth or, you know, Crocus's youth. And it's always playing out throughout this book more than any other character. Um, he's the he's the young person that has a libido that can't be controlled. <laughs> I don't, I think no, that's I don't like that description. I don't, don't like that description. No, I think he just now figured out that he likes her. But I think there were time. No, when they were riding on the horse together, he was doing things so that she would have to put her arms around him more. That was like a just control thing com- or a power power move. And I've kind of, and I mean, I'm not trying to paint Crocus as the jerkiest jerk. He's 17 years old. He's kind yeah. of the jerkiest jerk, though. Well, 17 year olds usually are. Especially if they're boys. Well, if you're listening to this and you're 17, we're not talking about you. No, we aren't. <laughs> Unless you can, uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, Crocus has a, a journey to get through. And yes. we'll see how it plays out by the end of the book, hopefully. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree. <sighs> Mr. Mansplain himself. Oh, uh, he was a horrible person in this He part. was. Yeah, no, he was More real than ever. bad. I mean... Yeah. But we've seen it again. You know, you're not telling me what's going on with Marilia or Cole. You know, uh, oh, I want to do this. I want to steal something, and then I want to keep it, and then I want to give it back just because I'm in love with this girl I don't know. I'm going to show her my face. He's he's screwing up all the time. And, I mean, again, it's just it, it is a uh, is a, a young person with a libido that can't be controlled, and it's screwing up all sorts of stuff including the way he's acting with the other people. Yeah. That's how I feel about Crocus. All right, that's fair. That's fair. Philip, do you have anything to add? No, I think Yule actually did a fantastic job of explaining it all. He's just... Thanks, um, you did. You did a great job. He's been interested in her, and he's just been kind of pushing back on that interest, but now he's like, why not? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what conviction I guess I could I don't know maybe you know uh, I hope it's more of a hopeful like wow I never fully saw it before and now I am now oh so he's realizing it now well you know again I I, I think he's liked her at least a little bit or at least been interested and knew that their paths were going to cross type thing before mm-hmm. and you know, as it's been happening, now he's been broken down just a little bit. Maybe, I would be worried that yeah. after being such a jerk 
for so long to this girl that he's already ruined it and that she's going to be like, okay, I'm done. I got to move on. I got to find somebody else. And, and, uh, well, cause she's expressed seen, her interest. She has. And I mean, she has, she, uh, she's, she obviously didn't want to be left alone, but yeah. she was like, like I said, she, I think she was a hundred percent going to be going wherever Crocus was going. Yeah. She hitched her wagon to that horse. Right. <laughs> she did. She did, and yeah, you got to be careful because she's she's wise. Um, she's she's a, she's at least observant. I think she might she, be smarter than old Crocus. She has, oh yeah, that seems obvious, right? <laughs> the Fisher girl was smarter than Crocus, wiser for sure, <laughs> right? But she's now gaining all these skills from all the times before. The only thing I worry is that if any of them ever start to kick in and the one that reminds her that she's supposed to kill this fool, <laughs> should that happen, that would be a bad situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to wait and see. All right, this ends book six, chapter 19. It's it. That's it. We're done with this section. We have one book left to go, book seven, called what now? The Fate. The Fate. Exactly. For so, those of you at home, what? It's fate. It is fate. It is fate. Yes. Um, nevertheless, that's it. That concludes everything. I don't really have anything to add. I think that it was pretty self-explanatory, and if it wasn't, we covered it already. Uh, do you guys have anything that you want to throw in before we close it for the day? No, I think I'm good. You all? Sorry, y'all. No, I hope everybody enjoyed this. I really did. This was a great uh, chapter. It was obvious that you did, in my opinion, because you were pretty on it. Yeah, thanks. So thank yeah. you for being on it. That was awesome. Um, Philip, I expect more. And uh, thank you guys for joining <laughs> us, and we'll see you in the next one. <laughs>